You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to Tech Tank, where we take big bites of information and turn them into bits. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow, and I'm so excited about the conversation we're going to have today. It's no secret that artificial intelligence is now used in virtually all aspects of our lives. Banks use them to make loan decisions. Government agencies use them to determine social welfare eligibility and root out fraud. Police departments are even using AI and facial recognition systems that are disproportionately arresting people of color. And employers are using AI to evaluate potential candidates. While it may seem like this is the wave of the future, there are unchecked biases within existing algorithmic systems that are both damaging and devastating. Loan decisions made on credit invisible populations have been repeatedly reported as unfair. Social welfare systems that tend to place more black and brown children in foster care over others or deny people much needed benefits are happening. And let's not talk about facial recognition and the problems with that software among police departments who have already started out criminally and socially flawed who are actually using this technology to repeat the wrongful arrests of innocent black men and women. These technologies have challenges and it's not so much the technical side of it, my friends. It's the flaws that come with the violation of people's human and civil rights. I'm so excited because we're going to talk about that today in this podcast. I've got two guests who, oh my goodness, who are out of sight, who are taking on these issues head on. Renee Cummings is the University of Virginia's first data activist and residence and criminologist at the School of Data Science. She's also a community scholar in artificial intelligence and criminal justice at Columbia University. And let's also put this in there. She's the founder of Criminal Justice Intelligence, Inc. and Urban AI. And Lisa Rice, she's the president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance. She played a major role in crafting sections of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act and in establishing the Office of Fair Lending within the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And most recently, she is the person that took on the discriminatory algorithms that were denying housing to eligible residents for HUD. Ladies, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for including me. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. So let's just jump right into it, Renee and Lisa. Well, first of all, let me just start with this. Both of you have done incredible work identifying AI bias and fighting it. So I'd love for the audience to hear more about the work that you do. And I'll start with you, Lisa. Tell us how you're talking about AI bias and how you're seeing it play out in financial and housing decisions. Well, Nicole, thank you for the question. And I have to say, it's just, I am really privileged and honored to be here with Renee. 
my shiro, two of my shiros. So this whole question of AI bias and how it impacts consumers is critically important because, as we all know, these algorithms are hidden systems, they're clandestine, and people don't see how they are impacting their lives, but they impact people's lives uh, in very real ways, right? In fact, they impact every aspect of our lives from the advertisements that we see in our social media feeds to our ability to qualify for a loan to even how much we're going to pay for insurance. So the challenge that we face, though, is that our marketplaces are deeply inequitable, And they were designed to be that way, right? They're built on centuries of race-based laws that were meant to provide opportunities to white consumers while simultaneously denying opportunities to Blacks and Native American groups, Latinos, Asian Americans, and other people of color. So these discriminatory laws that we have passed down through the centuries created systems that are intrinsically biased. These systems are still with us today, right? Residential segregation. In fact, we're more segregated today than we were 100 years ago. Our resources are segregated and tied to where people live. We have the dual credit market that was that is very inequitable, restrictive zoning ordinances and the like. So we've got all of these systems still in existence today that are doing what they were designed to do when they were developed, and that is create disparities based on race. And these systems are also generating biased, flawed data that we then use to build algorithmic models and systems that are unfair. And that is why we're seeing biased systems like credit scoring systems, tenant screening selection systems, facial recognition systems, underwriting systems that are leading to things like housing loss, displacement, unemployment, credit denials, higher prices for goods and services, health disparities. And so that is why it is so imperative that these data-driven systems have to be scrutinized. They have to be reframed and remodeled to ensure that they're not inflicting these harms on consumers. Wow, Lisa, I can't wait to unpack a little bit of that, this conversation. But before we do that, Renee, let me pivot to you because you really focus on AI use in the criminal justice system, policing, among other areas. Tell the audience about the work you're doing and let's dive into, I think, a little bit of what Lisa is also talking about as you approach these issues in your own portfolio. Thank you, Nicole. And of course, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you and Lisa in uh, this conversation. So I just want to say there are great rewards to the deployment of data science and machine learning and AI in the criminal justice system. When we look at the latest developments in justice tech and data-driven and evidence-based policies, but there are also greater risks. And the risks are what we need to be paying attention when it comes to the concept of algorithmic justice or what we've been seeing deployed on the streets as in algorithmic 
injustice because we are seeing these algorithmic decision-making systems being responsible for some really high-stakes decision-making in the criminal justice system. And as Lisa alluded to, uh, that history of race-based laws are also a part of the criminal justice system because we are seeing in the ways in which we are coding that history of enslavement, that history of colonization and oppression of African people, of Black indigenous people of color. We're seeing those slave codes and the slave patrols and the three-fifth clause and the Jim Crow laws as part of the ways in which we are designing many of, of these technologies, be it subconsciously or consciously. So we've really got to think about what are the data points that we're using to design uh, risk assessment tools in the criminal justice system or AI-inspired or AI-infused policing tactics and, and strategies and approaches. Because what we have seen, which is most visible when it comes to algorithms in the criminal justice system, is the challenge of Blackness as a data point for risk. Blackness as a data point for danger. Blackness as a data point for unworthiness. Blackness as a data point for deficit. So we've got to think about ways in which we need to decode the code. And we've got to think about ways in which we can bring more accountability and transparency and public oversight and public engagement around the ways in which algorithms are being deployed in the criminal justice system. Civil liberty, civil rights, human rights, these are big topics when we think about data rights and when we think about due process and, and duty of care and, and our constitutional rights, which are being compromised by many of the ways in which algorithms and algorithmic decision-making systems are being deployed. When we think about the right for a fair trial, uh, that's the challenge right there when your accuser is an algorithm. So we have got to think about our criminal justice system and our approaches to policing, because what we are seeing would be algorithmic injustices undermining public trust and, and public confidence and the legitimacy of the criminal justice system. And if we have a criminal justice system that is deemed illegitimate, then what we don't have is justice. You know, I, I am sitting here scribbling notes because I want to unpack a couple of things for the listeners before we go into this next set of questions. I mean, you both have brought up this real true fact that at play in these technical systems is race and race as a construct for sort of laying the foundation. I like the way you put it, Renee, these black data points that come with a history. Before I move on to the next section, I, I think it's important for readers to understand just how correlated our history is with regards to these algorithmic decision-making tools. I mean, Lisa, when you're listening to Renee and, and as you heard yourself and the conversations you and I have had, you know, why is it so hard for people to disentangle that race and racism are at play when these computer models sort of take over these scenarios? Nicole, I love that question. The reason it's hard for people to understand these issues and sort of disentangle all of these really intersectional issues is because we've lulled ourselves into this belief that we are somehow now a fair society, right? So, you know, Renee has been talking about the legacy of discriminatory race-based 
laws that we've passed in our society. And there, there are literally thousands of them. And when I tell people that there are thousands of race-based laws that we have passed in our nation's history, they don't believe me until we start going through and rattling them off. The Jim Crow laws, the Black codes, the slave codes, the racially restrictive covenants, even even laws that had racially neutral names and benign names like the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act and the National Highway Act and the Social Security Administration Act were implemented with racist policies, policies that explicitly associated race with risk. And we are ignorant of this history. We do not teach this history to our students. And so because people don't know the history, they think it doesn't exist. And that's the challenge that we face, Nicole. We're facing this very real challenge in our schools today. Look at the fights against, quote unquote, critical race theory, which really, when you boil it down, these laws are not forbidding the teaching of what is truly critical race theory in our schools and classrooms. They're forbidding the teaching of history. They're forbidding the teaching of what we've been talking about, these racialized laws that were expressly designed to to embed inequality into our system, to ingrain racism into our systems. And because we don't know about it and because we're ignorant about it, we like to believe that they don't exist. You know, we say, well, look, we passed the Fair Housing Act and we passed the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and we passed the Community Reinvestment Act. We passed all of these civil rights laws. But what we're missing is these civil rights laws really focus on the transactional. They don't focus on the systems that were built as a result of all of these unfair laws. And we've been talking about some of these systems. Those systems are still in place, like we said, doing what they were designed to do. So, you know, you can say, hey, look, Lisa, when you come to me, you can't consider my race when you're making a decision. And I say, okay, I won't consider the fact, I will not think about the fact that you are black when I'm making this decision about whether or not I'm going to give you a loan. In fact, don't even tell me your race. But what I say to you is, give me your credit score, right? And I use then the credit score to make a decision about you. And we're all blind to the fact that, as Renee said, the Blackness is coded in the credit score, Oof, oof. It makes me think of the zip code, right? I may not give you the race, but I might give you the zip code. And I'm just following along as a sociologist. That zip code may be on the other side of the interstate or it may be in a fenced in community that is not prime property. I'm finishing up my book, both of you know. And one of the arguments that I make around the home ownership maps, Lisa, I'm actually talking about this whole idea of digital redlining, you know, and the extent that it exists because redlining exists. You know, Renee, when I think about 
about what Lisa's talking about in these race neutral policies or the way that these policies have been designed to actually contribute to disparate outcomes for people of color. I want to talk to you, though, because you do fascinating work on data trauma. And, you know, girl, I have been quoting you and quoting you and quoting you on that, because on that panel, when you mentioned that, it speaks a lot to what Lisa's talking about for the people that are listening. Sometimes it's not malfeasance that's explicit, right? It's part of the society in which we live. And that comes with a range of trauma. Renee, break it down for us when you talk about data trauma for this group of what you're referring to, and then go back and tie that back to, you know, why are people not getting the connection? Definitely. On on that question of zip codes as well, we all know that our zip codes are color coded as well. So we know that from the zip code, we could know what the dimensions of that community look like. When it comes to data trauma, and it's something that I'm very passionate about because it's really linked to this question of individuals getting the opportunity to create the legacies of which they are worthy. When we think about data trauma, we think about, you know, how do we reconcile this long and traumatic history of technology? Technologies and data being used to track or to trace and to traumatize and to terrorize Black, Indigenous people of color. We also speak about intergenerational transmission of trauma in uh, communities of color because of data. When we think about individuals being denied uh, credit or being denied a loan or being denied a mortgage, then we understand how uh, economic injustice leads to questions of social injustice and the ability of some communities. And of course, communities are built up of families to really have an opportunity to acquire wealth. When we think of generational wealth and how that is acquired, when we think about the lack of resources. And we link that to opportunities when we think about just a lack of access to opportunity. And when we think about opportunities mean in building legacies, then we understand the disproportionate impact of data on communities of color, on ethnic and religious minorities and other marginalized and and vulnerable groups. So when we think about data and tech and AI, we have to think about power and privilege and politics. And we've got to think about how the tools that are being designed now, new and emerging technologies, how these tools are really transmitting that intergenerational trauma. Because one of the things that we have not seen is the ability of data to erase the trauma of colonization and oppression and enslavement because we've not been able to have truthful conversations on the history of the country. We've not been able to really look at the historic subconscious of the society and really deal with the ways in which race and technology combine to exacerbate the existing structural and systemic inequalities. And and that's the system on which technology is being built. And this is why we really need that justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, which is the uh, Jedi principle to the ways in which we are thinking about technology and designing and developing and deploying technology. So when we think about trauma, we've got to look at data trauma within the context of algorithms really informing the kinds of legacies we are going to see as we move into the future. And we've got to bring equity to the legacy space. 
You know, it's making me think about, I was in a conversation earlier today about privacy, data privacy, and and just the extent to which we in the United States have no federal privacy framework. But it makes me think, as I listen to both of you ladies, that people of color, BIPOC people in particular, are sort of, we're victimized by the open access to our data, but we're traumatized, right, by these systems of oppression that have basically manipulated and exploited those opportunities when those data points are available. And and Lisa, this gets me to, because, you know, I'm sure we got people listening who are like, okay, ladies, you know, last month was Black History Month. This month, let's move forward. Let's not stay in the academic aspect of this. Lisa, I know the work that you have done, particularly on the housing side, has made a measurable difference in suggesting and showing how this conversation manifests itself. Talk to us a little bit about the work at the National Fair Housing Alliance, and in particular, you know, how you got into this space real hard, right, when it came to the disparate impact of housing options for people who are eligible for Section 8 or low-income housing assistance. Nicole, that's right. And let me explain that concept to people, disparate impact or a discriminatory effect. Those two words can be used interchangeably. Uh, Disparate impact, that doctrine, that tool, believe it or not, I'm about to give you a jaw-dropping moment was first used under the Nixon administration by the Nixon administration Justice Department to fight discriminatory zoning ordinances, and one in particular in a city called Blackjack. And that framework was urged by then HUD Secretary George Romney, Senator Romney's father, who was a fair housing advocate. And disparate impact simply says that you can have a law or a policy that on its face seems neutral. It seems race neutral and unbiased. But when you apply that policy, when you apply that tool, it has a discriminatory effect on a group of people who are protected under our nation's civil rights laws. So let me give you an example, and then you'll understand why I'm giving you this example. In the 1990s, we brought a bevy of insurance redlining cases to uh, uh, fight insurance redlining practices. Insurance companies used to have this policy where they said, if your house is under a certain value, if it's priced under a certain value, we won't give you insurance. So if your house is valued under $50,000, you don't get insurance. Now, that seems race neutral on its face, but when you do the statistical analysis and you apply that policy in the real live marketplace, what we found based on our research was that in city after city after city throughout the United States, Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis, Toledo, Chicago, et cetera, it had a discriminatory effect or a disparate impact on African-Americans and Latinos Because in places like Milwaukee, when you looked at African-Americans and Latinos, and again, we're talking about the 1990s, about 90% of African-American and Latino homeowners lived in homes that were valued under $50,000, but only like 25 or 28% of whites lived in homes that were valued under $50,000. So you had this law that seemed racially neutral, but in effect, it effectively 
and systematically denied insurance coverage for almost every Black homeowner in these communities. So that's what disparate impact is. And we can use the disparate impact tool to fight algorithmic bias. And we did that in the 1990s in these insurance redlining cases that I told you about, because insurance companies at the time were using this new technology called insurance scoring systems. So they're just like credit scoring systems, but they're designed to sort of predict if you're ever going to file a claim, right? And in the discovery process, as we were litigating these cases, you know, we dug under the heel because we were in discovery, we could dig under the hood of these proprietary models. And we begin to find and explore ways to make these models less discriminatory. So what we did, Nicole, was we actually forbade the use of this technology that was harming communities and consumers of color. So if you go back and look at our insurance redlining settlements, you'll see that verbiage in the settlement agreements. But over time, technology just grew exponentially and we could not keep up with it. You know, we couldn't keep suing everybody and saying, hey, you can't use this technology. So when we brought our litigation against Facebook a couple of years ago, as we were working with Facebook, we, we decided, you know what, why don't we switch sides, so to speak, and start a tech equity initiative in which we're designing the tech and we're helping to fashion the policies to compel these systems to be fairer and to mitigate against harms that are impacting and hurting our communities. Wow. And I, I love that you have done that because I think it's made for a better product. For those of you that are listening, you know, in this case, what happened, Lisa, advertisers were able to check off people versus checking them in, which was a violation of the Fair Housing Act. Exactly. And as a result, right, it put Facebook under the microscope along with HUD for allowing the use of that technology. I want to stay here, Renee, as we've talked about the financial services side and the housing side. I want to jump to criminal justice and policing, because I want people to hear this way that we're critically evaluating how race and civil rights show up in these systems. Give me a recent example in the policing and criminal justice space as you've watched it. We have to be particularly careful or where we've made some improvement based on finding out those fallibilities. Definitely. I think what we're realizing is that we could use artificial intelligence to build systems for policing that are more accountable, more transparent, you know, early warning systems, ways in which we could ensure that particular officers who are given to a particular kind of violent behavior or who are do not understand that concept of use of force, we are able to check that kind of behavior. So there's also a lot of work that's happening in virtual reality when it comes to training police officers to ensure that their behaviors are more in building confidence and, and building the kind of trust that's required. But then we have surveillance technologies, and then we have facial recognition. But we always speak about trustworthy AI and the ways in which we could ensure communities of color are part of the conversation around AI. But the challenge that we are seeing is that the places that we are deploying AI and new and emerging technology, which would be in our urban spaces, those are the spaces where there is the greatest amount of distrust when it comes to police 
policing, when it comes to the kinds of systems that are governing uh, society. And what we are seeing is that culture of distrust creating extraordinary challenges for the deployment of technology. So when we think about law enforcement and the relationship between law enforcement and communities of color, when we think about social services, child protection, landlord-tenant issues, when we think about undocumented residents in these communities and the relationship between the undocumented and, let's say, a law enforcement agency such as ICE, then we understand that uh, many of these ideals that we have for intelligent cities or smart cities are really not thought out in a way to understand that you cannot deploy a technology in communities where there is low trust of the criminal justice system or the police system or technology. We've also got to think about the ways in which we are using surveillance technologies, you know, to track to trace, to terrorize, and the fact that many of these surveillance technology projects and products that are being deployed are more vanity projects because we're not seeing any relationship with reduced crime or violence or reduced homicide or in improved quality of life because of the technology. What we are seeing would be the over-policing of the same communities with new technology. And really, when we think about that, it's something that we can't reconcile within the context of ethical AI or the ethical use of technology in policing. So I think what criminal justice and policing allow us to do is to use these platforms to really put a microscope to the ways in which we are designing technology and for who and why. Why are we designing these technologies? Do we even need them? Or again, are we bringing that approach where we are just coding that history of discrimination and bias and those stereotypes into technologies to really traumatize communities that need to be lifted up and communities that need to be resourced instead of just putting money into the technologies are not serving the communities? I agree with that. I have a few more questions because I know we're getting near the end of our time, but I do want to ask these three very important questions that I think relate to everything we've spoken about today. So we know that there's always been a history of distrust when it comes to communities of color and systems of power, whether it's in policing or in, you know, who's making the loan decisions or the educational decisions. But we always have had these civil rights gap stops, right? There's been a regime that's been agile enough to guarantee some of the inalienable rights of citizenship. When we as Blacks, for example, move from being chattel to actually being people, we were subjected to the same constitutional rights as others. Lisa, I want to start with you on this, right? Because there should be some kind of uh, recourse from a civil rights perspective or some type of understanding or framing of what those civil rights laws are to help us in this space to mitigate these risks, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Nicole, and there is to a large degree. I mean, we've been able to use the matrix of existing civil rights laws to address all kinds of biases and technologies. Now, but I think part of the problem has been, Nicole, that think about it, you can't litigate every single instance of 
algorithmic bias, right? And we have these federal agencies, federal regulators, who are supposed to be working to make sure that the marketplace is fair. Unfortunately, our federal regulators haven't been able to keep up with the tech. And Nicole, you've heard me say this before. Technology is the new civil rights frontier, right? That's right. That's right. And if it's the new civil rights frontier, then you've got to have the tools, you've got to have the resources to sort of wrestle with these innovations that may represent the wild, wild west, as it were. And so unfortunately, the tech innovations have gotten out in front of the regulation. And now what we see is that federal regulators are trying to play catch up. And it's just a difficult thing to do. And Renee, on the side of the developers, right? Because if we're dealing with challenges when it comes to the flexibility and the interpretability of civil rights laws in this current digital universe, and this is something, Lisa, you know, thanks to you, my queen, we've been working on at Brookings as well, just trying to figure out what these civil rights frameworks could be. What about the people who are designing this, Renee? I mean, you sit in the data science space. What needs to happen on the part of the designers? I mean, are we, you know, dealing with folks that truly don't understand the experiences or the lived experiences? My friend, Dr. Faycott Payton would say when it comes to people of color or vulnerable populations, is it something that we need to change or do we need to teach these data scientists civil rights law so that they have that in their back pocket when they're developing? I think it's critical that they have that understanding of data rights and AI rights as, as civil rights. And it's also about measurement. Data science is about measurement. And if we need to measure populations or communities or systems, then what we need is accuracy. And at the moment, if we are using historically biased data sets or we are using data sets that are challenged because of bias and, and discrimination and systemic racism, it means that the accuracy of our decision-making systems are being undermined. And one of the most critical thing about technology is about accessibility. It's about bringing these equitable systems to really enhance everything from quality of life to quality of decision-making to the economy to just about every system that we have. I think the question always comes back to the accountability, the transparency, explainability and auditability of these systems. And if we begin at a place where our entire approach to measurement is one that is challenged, then we are just not bringing the kind of evidence-based policy decisions that are required. And when we think of our history of measurement in this country, it always goes back to the three-fifth clause. And if that was the way we began measuring, how could we be accurate? in our data in 2022. So we have got to do a reimagining of data science. And this is why data activism and AI ethics are so critical to the ways in which we are rethinking data science. And Renee, just on that point uh, real quickly, do you think we need to in the United States, based on everything we've spoken about today, the disparate impact, the differential treatment, the traumatized data, that we may want to look to what the EU has done with like high risk algorithms versus those which may be a lower risk? 
I think the EU sets a really solid example. I mean, they're committed to excellence as we are committed to excellence in AI and new and emerging technologies. And they're also committed to trustworthy AI. And I think what the EU does well is that concept of privacy and data protection and security. And those are areas where we are still struggling in the United States. So the EU is huge or really big on regulation. And regulation is something that we are yet to get right. And and the EU has this approach where it really puts its citizens first. And I think if anything we could learn from the the EU is really that commitment to civil rights and, and that commitment to human rights and just ensuring that the safeguards and the protections are there for every member of society. You know, this leads me to, I I just don't want you both to go. I am enjoying this conversation (laughs) so much. But by the time we finish this conversation, if we don't end soon, someone's going to be in another state in their car, right? Listening to this podcast. Listen, I want to end this with this question because I think it's really relevant to where we are in the United States. Because I do agree with you, Renee. I think that there's stuff that we can learn from the EU and other countries who really try to prioritize what could be considered high risk based on the vulnerabilities of the populations who are the subject. You know, there is a conversation happening nationally around AI governance. It's coming out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. Uh, Dr. Alondra Nelson uh, authored a piece on a right space framework to AI where consumers sort of understand a lot of the nuances that we discussed today. When we think about the U.S.'s handling of AI and the responsibility that the government is taking to actually push these issues to the forefront, what else do we need because right now it just seems like we're in competition, right, ladies, with other countries on the AI race between us and other countries who are technologically advancing. There are, as Renee has said, some benefits to AI. But if you were able to sort of articulate two or three points to a policymaker who is thinking about the future of AI and its democratization, what would be those two or three points? I'll start with you, Lisa, and then I'll go to Renee. Sure. I think you and Renee kind of touched on this point already, Nicole. We have to update our policies to state very clearly that bias is a systemic risk. We need to say that explicitly and we need to build that into our policies that we're shaping and reshaping. Renee, I loved your term reimagining and reshaping our policy landscape, because systemic risk can end up tanking markets, whole economies. We saw that with the Great Recession, right? So systems that have the potential for systemic risk must demand elevated oversight. So we got to build that into the the framework. Then the other thing I think, Nicole, we need to develop better frameworks for monitoring algorithmic systems. And as you know, the National Fair Housing Alliance just came out with a new framework. We believe that it represents the gold standard for fairness monitoring and fairness auditing for algorithmic-based systems. It's called Purpose, Process, and Monitoring, or PPM. I encourage people to just Google it and, and look it up, or you can go to our website and look it up. But we have to have new frameworks for auditing these systems to make sure that they're not exhibiting harms against consumers and communities. Renee? I think for me, I think what we do well in the United States is diversity. And I think we do that better than any other place in the world. 
And I think we've got to think about how do we stretch the imagination of AI and new and emerging technology with diversity? We've got to leverage diversity. We've got to capitalize on diversity. There is no place in the world, not even China, who has access to the kind of diverse data sets that we can build in the U.S. I think what the Biden administration is doing well would be uh, trying to bring this national strategy to the people. And of course, the AI Bill of Rights, which is something that we can really expand and expound on within the context of civil rights and, and looking at the harms and looking at the risks but also looking at the rewards. AI is an extraordinary technology with the ability to transform the world in ways in which we are yet to imagine. But the risk of AI is that we don't understand the depths of this technology. And many times when an algorithm makes a decision, that decision is made before we even know about it and we may never know about it. So when we think about public understanding and public education and public engagement, we've got to do more of that to really build that public interest around technology. And I think we've got to lift up our AI ethics community, and we've got to lift up the, the activists who've been really speaking about algorithmic justice and data justice and the ways in which we need to really stretch the imagination of technology. But Again, for me, what we are doing really well is building that engagement of conversations around AI ethics and about ways in which we need to regulate. But we've got to put a little more bite in the ways in which we are doing our you know, regulation and just remove a lot of the barking. That's not serving us well. Wow. You know, like I said, I could stay here for another hour, but I won't do that. I'll just talk to each of you individually <laughs> because I always <laughs> do to just sketch your advice and to hear your wisdom. You know, I want to thank both of you for coming and being on our podcast. This has been incredible 45 minutes just talking about this issue. So thank you both ladies for coming. <laughs> I appreciate you both. Thank you so much. It was such an honor as always to be in your company. And of course, oh. uh, Lisa's as well. Oh, I know. I know. Thank you so much. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. It's the mutual respect society. You know, I, it, it is, it is. And, you know, I'm just going to say this, as you both were talking, I started to think about Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and Dr. King and Maya Angelou, people who were concerned with the equity that was imparted to people of color, particularly black people, as well as people who attempted to rearticulate that experience to change the narrative of trauma, to build it differently. And I think about, you know, the fact that we could substitute any vulnerable group into any of the conversation that we had today. And more importantly, the message that really resonated with me today is equality, fairness, and compliance, and trying to figure out ways that we understand that those protections that those people that I just spoke about worked for and worked hard to achieve are not things that are reversible, that they need to still stand as a foundation as we build upon these technological systems. You know, with that, again, thank you so much for joining us and for all of you that have been listening to this episode of the Tech Tank Podcast. Thank you for being just loyal listeners as we debate and interrogate the qualities of technology and how they factor into these broader conversations 
conversations. You're listening to Tech Tank as always. And if you want more information on the issues that we discuss as part of the podcast, please go to the Tech Tank newsletter, which is available on the Brookings website, where we have written extensively about those issues, myself included. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.